Hello everyone, Merry Christmas, I'm Nathan and welcome to this festive edition of the Black Country Talking News for the 20th of December 2023, where in true Christmas style we have reruns of some of your much loved classic recordings and a whole host of new treats for you all to enjoy too. Hello and welcome to the Black Country Talking News, brought to you by the sight loss charity Beacons. We're pleased to confirm that the Talking News is now available via Alexa. Once you've enabled the Talking Newspapers skill, all you need to do is play Talking Newspapers and ask for the Black Country Talking News. Our Talking News service is also available via the free Wireless for the Blind app. It can be found on the Beacon Centre website www.beaconvision.org forward slash talking dash news. As a podcast via services such as Apple or Spotify or as a free CD, simply contact Beacon Centre on 01902 We hope you enjoy this week's edition. Reading this week, we have myself, Christine, Angela, Ian, Liz, Helen, Mina, Simon, and of course, not forgetting Santa's favourite flashback, Roger. In this edition, we have Tales from Christmas Past, from 100 years of uh, newspaper archives, an update from Beacon, a festive quiz, some feature football stories, where football was more than just a game, a look back to 2010 when the weather outside was frightful, some Christmas cracker jokes, and a bake-along session full of sugar spice and everything nice. We start this week with some housekeeping notes. A gentle reminder that this edition of the Black Country Talking News will be the last one of the year and we will be returning on the 10th of January 2024. Time now for our first block of nostalgic news and starting this one off we have Angela. A religious revival had swept through the fishing towns and villages of the northeast coast of Scotland, where many folk were sitting on the hillsides at night awaiting the crack of doom, and fishermen had cancelled wholesale policies on their boats. Locally and nationally, supply of turkeys was unequal to demand, and prices were soaring to as much as three shillings and sixpence a pound in London, equivalent to 18p in today's money but geese, ducks, chickens and game were more plentiful. These were times of industrial depression and there were still workhouses which joined in the festivities. At Wensfield Workhouse, for instance, the Christmas dinner was of roast beef and plum pudding, sweets and fruit. And in the evening of Christmas Day, there was cinema entertainment thanks to a link up with the Picture House and Coliseum. 1931. They played league football on Christmas Day back then and Wolves travelled to Old Trafford where they were on the receiving end of an unexpected setback in their bid for promotion, losing 3-2 against Manchester United. Attendance was a record gate for the season, 33,000. Wolves were second in the Division 2 table behind Leeds United. Manchester United were in the lower half. These two were tough times, and thanks to the generosity of Express and Star readers to the appeal by one of the columnists, Christmas toys had been distributed to poor children in the black country, as well as further afield such as Shrewsbury, Cannock and Wellington. A car carrying Father Christmas and a load of toys went to poorer parts of towns, much to the children's delight. At some houses, plum puddings were left. Touring round Wolverhampton, in several instances in which children with ragged and threadbare clothes were seen playing in the street, the star van stopped and new clothes were taken out and fitted on the youngsters before the vehicle drove on again. 
If such a thing happened today, there would probably be arrests. In Shropshire, the community of St. George's got an early Christmas present on December the 22nd, with the opening of a bypass sparing the village from the increasing amount of traffic going along the London to Hollyhead Trunk Road. nineteen forty one the war was on and this was probably the grimmest wartime Christmas of the lot, with a series of staggering naval setbacks. In a period of just a few days, the Royal Navy lost four battleships and a battle cruiser, starting with the torpedoing of HMS Barham in the Mediterranean on november twenty fifth. Then, on December the 10th, HMS Prince of Wales, one of the Navy's newest battleships, along with the battlecruiser HMS Repulse, was sunk by Japanese aircraft off Malaya. There was a further disaster on December the 19th, when the battleships HMS Valiant and HMS Queen Elizabeth were sunk in harbour by Italian frogmen, although in shallow water they settled on the bottom and were salvaged. Their plight and the loss of the Barham was suppressed. In the Far East, the news was uniformly bad, with Hong Kong surrendering to the Japanese on Christmas Day. Away from the war, panto audiences at the Grand Theatre in Wolverhampton were able to see someone reputed to be the oldest living stage artist in the world, 97-year-old Johnny Watson, who was appearing in Babes in the Wood, in which he had a dog act. He was so old, he was said to be the only living artist to have appeared before Queen Victoria at Buckingham Palace. Over in America, Al Jennings, a reformed gunslinger who claimed to have been the fastest gun in the West, died at the age of 98 on Boxing Day. Next, we hear from Helen, who, as usual, has our latest Beacon update. Hi, everyone. It's Helen from Beacon, back with our last update before Christmas. And talking about the festive season, our retail team have put so much care and effort into our Christmas window displays at our shops around the region, and we think they look great. If you want to get into the holiday spirit, pop by your local shop to check out what we've been up to. You can find your nearest Beacon store on our website www.beaconvision.org forward slash shops. And don't forget, we have a QR code in the window of our Sedgley shop to give you an audio description of what's what's in the window. Now, this week, we'd also like to say a big thank you to the children at Wolverhampton Spring Vale Primary School who have recently visited us here at Beacon to perform a carol concert for our members. Their wonderful singing helped get everyone into the Christmas spirit and we'd like to thank the pupils for taking time out of their day to put on such a fabulous festive event for our members. And on the subject of thank yous, can you believe that since July, our National Lottery funding from the National Lottery Community Fund has enabled our site loss advisors to deal with more than 260 referrals to help people live well with site loss and spread the message about good eye health. Thank you to National Lottery players for helping to make amazing happen. And I finished the thank yous with a very, very special one. And that's because it's to all of you. Everyone who braved the snow to take part in our Santa run this year helped us raise more than £3,700 for our charity. We'd like to say thank you to every single participant, not forgetting our four-legged doggy friends, for their incredible support to help us ensure that no one has to face sight loss alone. And last this week, a little Christmas ask. Could you give a little to help a lot this festive season? If you donate a Christmas wish to go on a Christmas tree in one of our shops, you could help us ensure that our work carries on to support people with sight loss. Pop into your nearest store to donate your wish. That's it for this week. And as I say, that's it before Christmas. So just to take the time to say Merry Christmas to you all. And I'll see you in the new year. Bye bye. Thanks for that update, Helen. 
Liz now takes us back to 1944, where a black country resident remembers the generous folk of Wolverhampton amidst a wartime Christmas 79 years ago. Times change, but not people. Christmas Eve, 1944. My father had been a prisoner of war for almost five years. He escaped from Dunkirk, then sent to Egypt, then on to Crete, where, like so many others, were taken prisoner. He left behind my mother and three very young children. We got ready to go to town, throwing a very old shoe on the fire, followed by an old cabbage leaf, hoping it would last till our return. My brother and I had on our freshly darned socks covering our hands. Gloves were for the rich at this time. We caught the bus for town opposite the Clifton Cinema Fallings Park and alighted in Stafford Street, then walked to the market. My mum carried a shopping basket of the time and in it one or two brown paper carrier bags. The market at that time was next to St Peter's Church, with the indoor market by its side. It must have been getting on for 4.30pm when we arrived at the market. The stallholders were just beginning to close, some already doubting their paraffin lamps. We had arrived at the appointed time specified by my mum, We started to go around the market picking up the fruit and veg from the floor which had fallen off the market stalls during the day. The stallholders never said nothing as we filled our brown paper carrier bags to the brim. Then with mum in the lead we made our way into the inside market hall. This too was in the throes of closing. We made our way to the man who was auctioning off the fowl. He had very few left. He looked at us and the good Lord must have whispered in his ear for he gave my mum a chicken. My mum was simply overcome for he had saved our rent money, God bless him. Back home my mum and sister got to work on the chicken, firstly chopping off its head, then plucking its feathers, then drawing its innards. I can still, so many years on, smell the odours of that chicken. Time for bed before the big man came. First, make sure that the galvanised bucket on the landing was empty. This served the purpose of an upstairs toilet, for it was too cold to go outside in the middle of the night. Then a quick look through the bedroom window, after you had cleaned the frost inside the window pane. All was peaceful. Next job, on the eve, was to hang up our long socks on the bedposts. Then hope, above hope, the big man would not overlook us on this special night. We woke early, my brother and I. Our socks were laden with the fruit we had gathered from the floor of the market. On my pillow was a teddy bear. I was thrilled. I know it had only one eye and one arm, but I gave it a love that lasted a year, then passed it down. Through the years, I have learnt that times change, but not people. James M. Barrett, Fallings Park Now it's time to test your knowledge, as we have the quiz questions for this edition. Take it away, Roger. TNF Soundings. Features from across the UK. Well, hello, ho, ho. It's Santa. Oh, no, it's not. It's, It's Roger Brooks here with a Christmas quiz. So I hope you're in the mood for it. Hope you're in the mood for Christmas and hope you're in the mood for a little brain teaser or two. Okay, first question. My memory doesn't go back this far, but apparently in the old days, before we had turkey on Christmas Day, what was England's traditional Christmas meal? Think unusual and don't get bored. Question two. Which of the following artists has had the most Christmas number ones. Sir Cliff Richard, Abba, Slade, The Beatles, or Elvis Presley? Cliff, Abba, Slade, 
Beatles or Elvis, who's had most Christmas number ones? Question three. Which country traditionally donates the Trafalgar Square Christmas tree in for London? Which country donates Trafalgar Square's Christmas tree? Question four. There's a song which is commonly known as Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire. That's the opening line. But when he wrote it, Mel Torme called it The Christmas Song. So if you think through that lovely song, I want to know whose eyes are said to be all aglow. Blankety blank with their eyes all aglow. Question five. Another tradition. Why is Boxing Day called Boxing Day? Question six. How many tips are there on a snowflake? How many tips on a snowflake? Points. Question seven. We've spoken about Christmas trees. What's the most popular treetop ornament in Britain? Which is the most popular topping for a Christmas tree? Question eight. Who wrote A Christmas Carol? Who wrote A Christmas Carol? Question nine. When do the 12 days of Christmas technically start? Question ten. What's the name for the period between Christmas and New Year? Question 11, which I've managed to find. What was Scrooge's first name in A Christmas Carol? What was Scrooge's first name? Question 12. Which song has the line Everyone dancing merrily in the new old-fashioned way? That's a very popular store Christmas song. One of those that the staff in most supermarkets are bored stiff with by you get to by the time you get to Christmas Eve, I'm sure. Question thirteen. Aha Santa's reindeer Which one has the name of a love icon? What reindeer has the name of a love icon? Question fourteen In the song Winter Wonderland there's a line that goes in the meadow we can build a snowman and pretend that what? Pretend what? Question 15. Back to those 12 days of Christmas. And then the song, what did my true love give to me on the eighth day? Day eight. Question 16. Back to Santa and his reindeer. Three of them shared the initial D. What were those three? Question 17. Which plant is known as the Christmas flower? Question 18. In the traditional screening at Christmas of the black and white movie It's a Wonderful Life, that gives you clues to how old it is, it's said to be a wonderful story of redemption and uh, joyful, and it's most enjoyable. But who is the male star of It's a Wonderful Life? Question 19, back to Christmas trees. The royal family have a tradition, and I want to know which decoration that is used quite popularly around the country and around the world is not ever featured on a royal Christmas tree. And question 20, finally. I don't know what you leave out for Santa, but some people leave out a little glass of grog and a mince pie. But in Sweden, the children leave something different out. It is a drink. I want to know the name of that drink. That's all the questions for now. Ho, ho, ho. TNS Soundings. Thanks for those, Roger. I'll get my mind working on them right now.
Up next, however, let's have another block of local news. Nineteen fifty one, Dudley Hippodrome made history of sorts on december twenty second when a BMC team arrived at the performance of Cinderella in the first case of a panto being televised live from a provincial theatre. These were still days of post war rationing, and it was reported that more people than ever in the West Midlands were deserting the traditional Christmas at home by the fireside, with hotels and guest houses reporting the busiest Christmas rush for years. Hotels in large towns and country districts alike had been forced to turn away hundreds of applications for accommodation on Christmas Day. In Korea, there were continuing truce talks, but communist negotiators rejected United Nations pleas for an immediate exchange of sick and wounded prisoners, and the conflict dragged on. It was not until July 1953 that an armistice agreement would be signed. A young Dudley lad was making a name for himself in the world of football. Duncan Edwards had already won five junior international caps and was about to make his first appearance in the Birmingham and District Schoolboys team. 1961. It was a cold one, one of the coldest Christmases for years. With Arctic conditions, it was the coldest Yuletide spell at RAF Shawbury Met Office since it was opened in 1943, and the River Severn was frozen over long stretches for the first time since 1947. Although only the swans found the ice thick enough to skate upon. On Christmas Day, the maximum temperature was freezing point, and the minimum temperature minus eight Celsius. Wolverhampton reported its coldest Christmas period for 17 years. One consequence, which is less often seen these days, where so many people have central heating, is that plumbers were very busy dealing with burst pipes. In the run-up to Christmas, Shropshire's Chief Constable Douglas Osmond issued a message which is as relevant today: "Don't have one for the road." It came as it seemed that 1961 might see the county suffer its highest number of road fatalities ever. Nineteen seventy-one. Now, who were the guests on the Morecambe and Wise Christmas Show broadcast on BBC One at 8 p.m. on Christmas Day? It was one of their legendary shows with a star-studded lineup of Shirley Bassey, Glenda Jackson, Andre Previn, Francis Matthews, Patrick Moore, Michael Parkinson, and Eddie Waring. Prince Philip had got in a bit of hot water. But what was new for suggesting that people could be taxed for having babies, which he said would keep down the population. There was an almost daily dose of bad news from strife-torn Northern Ireland. A group of Labour MPs were calling for Tory Prime Minister Ted Heath to sack the Education Minister, one Margaret Thatcher, for her reactionary policies towards school milk and meals, direct grant schools, student unions, and for the neglect of secondary school rebuilding. A local hotel, the Bear Hotel at Hodnet, reopened after alterations on December 23rd with two very special additions: imported baby Malayan sun bears to mingle with the customers. Sadly, the bears both soon died. The rumour being that they died of alcohol poisoning, as regulars gave them beer and food. Despite increasing sales of artificial Christmas trees, the old-fashioned needle-shedding real thing was reportedly more popular than ever. With regional provider George Wicksteed of Priest selling 2,000 compared with only 300 in 1970. Now, with the latest football news from 1973, Ian tells us the strange tale of Oxbourne FC, a Sunday league team given the red carpet by a German town when they were remarkably mistaken for the Wolves. As their battered minibus 
Its rusted exhaust belching fumes entered the German carnival city of Mainz. Its passengers, nursing hangovers from the boozy beer keller excesses of the night before, sensed something was awry. Badly awry. Posters that appeared to adorn every street stirred the first feelings of unease amongst the ragtag band of green gilled Sunday footballers. Can you believe it, said one, craning at a flyer through dirty windows. That's a coincidence. Wolves are playing here today, too. Panic, cold and skin crawling, surfaced as the bus edged through massed ranks of chanting supporters evidently marching to the same ground where Oxbarn FC, languishing in Wolverhampton Sunday League's 7th tier, had organised a kickabout with fellow devotees of Mud and Nettles pub football. It was to be the culmination of an alcohol-drenched stag trip to celebrate the impending weddings of two Oxbarn squad members. Loud expletives of disbelief surfaced as the dented bus pulled up outside what the players believed would be their opponent's park pitch. It was the 20,000 capacity stadium in Mainz, and long ribbons of supporters were already forming outside turnstiles. The penny dropped loudly, the thud hollow and harrowing. Oxbarn, a team that plied their trade on Wenlock Avenue's uneven turf, had become the unwitting victims of football's greatest blunder, a case of mistaken identity so bizarre there were once plans to make a big-screen blockbuster about the calamity. Oxbarn's story is a strange, even surreal example of the perils and pitfalls that lurk in football's basement. Oxbahn had been pitted against SVV Mainz at the time in the Bundesliga's top division, and the honed athletes of SVV Mainz believed the pot-bellied pilgrims of football at its most part-time were mighty Wolverhampton Wanderers who had reached the UEFA Cup final the year before. They even laid on a marching band and post-match civic reception. The 1973 episode was of its time. Today, an age when social media has removed the shackles that bound overseas communication, it would not happen. Back then, Oxbarn posted a hopeful letter to the mayor of Mainz, an ancient city on the banks of the Rhine, inquiring if any local team fancied a game. Manager Ronnie Parker penned the request, starting the note, We are a team in Wolverhampton. The excited Mainz burger got the wrong end of the stick, translating the communication as, We are the team in Wolverhampton. He believed the letter had been sent by wolves and made lavish, hasty plans for a sporting extravaganza. The result was a football David and Goliath clash like no other, but there was to be no biblical miracle for the Oxbarn boys. They were 10-0 down at half-time and had shipped 21 goals by the time the final whistle blew. They say Germans don't have a sense of humour, Oxbarn fullback John Shorthouse said decades after the drubbing. But in the second half, the crowd began breaking into ironic cheers every time we got the ball into the other half. Actually, they cheered when we made a successful pass. Speaking from his home in the sleepy Shropshire village of Beckbury, John, nephew of Wolves legend Bill Shorthouse, once again tasted the embarrassment of those tortuous 90 minutes. The taste was still bitter. They didn't cheer much, he said matter-of-factly, and to be fair, they stopped celebrating after the 14th goal. He had a lame excuse for Oxbarn's performance. It wasn't our strongest side. Some of our best players couldn't get time off work, and we'd been on the pop the night before. John, who is sadly no longer with us, recalled the terror that engulfed the ill-prepared team minutes before kickoff. He said, We just sat in silence on the bus, watching all these people file into the ground. Then someone piped up. We're going to have to tell them. I told everyone to keep their mouths shut. They rolled out the red carpet, really gone to town. Within minutes, perhaps seconds, of the start, the truth became painfully apparent to SVV Mainz and their plans. Oxpan's false hope that they may give their lofty opponents a game were mercilessly dashed. They didn't ease off. They didn't take it easy, said John. They had a towering forward called Adolf. Seriously, Adolf who ran rings around us. I couldn't even get close enough to kick him. He was good. God knows how many he scored, but he hit the back of the net with one bullet header from outside the box and we just watched it fly in with what was that expressions. Even the goalkeeper. 
it all proved too much for keeper Roger Titley, who possibly required long-term medical treatment for back injuries sustained through retrieving the ball from netting. When goal number 17 was hammered home, Roger's gallows humour surfaced. We trotted back to the centre circle and realised something was missing. The ball, John laughed. Roger had hidden it up the back of his jumper. He was just fed up with fishing it out of the net. The fans didn't get that. They didn't like that. Titley was not the only player to mentally unravel during the shambles. Quite a few of us didn't want to go out for the second half and needed a lot of persuading, said John. They were begging us, saying, you've got to do it. The post-match reception, featuring a lot of guests in a lot of gilt civic chains, did little to restore black country pride after a 21-0 loss. John admitted Oxbarn players sued the pain of the ceaseless punishment they'd received through alcohol. Lots of alcohol. Some were rolling drunk. Tell you what, John winked, we beat them at the drinking game, hands down. Those Mainz players couldn't hold their booze, probably because they were professional athletes. Mind you, one of our lads was sick on the bus. I remember standing swaying at a banquet table, heaving with food, and looking at these huge ham hocks that were piled up. I was wondering if you were supposed to take the whole thing or cut pieces off. This German defender, built like an outhouse, strode over, picked up a hock, slammed it on my plate, looked me in the eye and said, Eat. Eat it all. I ate it all. Now then, grab yourself a cuppa and find your comfy spot as it's time for some festive fun and cheer. TNF Soundings Features from across the UK Hi there, this is Amanda, and as we approach the festive season, thought it might be a nice idea to share some Christmas crackers with you, some jokes that will hopefully make you laugh, or indeed may make you groan. So sit back and enjoy, and indeed you may uh, be able to guess what the answers will be. What is green, covered in Christmas lights and Christmas bulbs, and goes ribbit? A mistletoe. Hmm. Why did the scarecrow get a big Christmas bonus? Because he was outstanding in his field. What do they sing at a snowman's birthday party? Freeze a jolly good fellow. What does Santa suffer from if he gets stuck in a chimney? Claustrophobia. What did the wise men say after they offered up their gifts of gold and frankincense? Wait, there's myrrh. Hmm. What do you get when you cross a snowman with a vampire? Frostbite. How do you help someone who has lost their Christmas spirit? Nurse them back to Elf. Oh! What's the absolute best Christmas present? A broken drum. You can't beat it. No. What do you call Santa when he stops moving? Santa paws. Hmm. Why does Santa have three gardens? So he can ho, ho, ho. <laughs> TNF Soundings. 
Up next, let's have another block of local news. 1981, that thing you've been dreaming of, just like the ones we used to know. Yes, it was a white Christmas. Now, we can't give you exact local details, but information from the Met Office confirms there was a widespread white Christmas across the UK, including in the Midlands, with only southwest England and Northern Ireland missing out. In any event, the region had seen the coldest December since 1890, with a combination of cold and snow not exceeded since 1878, and there would be more to come in the new year, with Edgemond seeing the lowest temperature ever recorded in England of minus 26.1 Celsius, that's minus 15 Fahrenheit, on January 10, 1982. Just before Christmas, there was a terrible disaster when the eight-strong crew of Cornwall's Penley lifeboat died in trying to rescue the crew of the cargo vessel Union Star, which was in difficulty in terrible conditions. All eight on the Union Star also perished. The Princess of Wales, rapidly becoming a fashion icon, set the fashion accessory business in a spin by wearing a Dr. Zhivago-style coat, burgundy leather boots and furry muff on a snowy royal visit. Santa was spotted being put through the test with many playful tugs of his beard as he did the rounds at all local hospitals, taking orders for what the children wanted for Christmas. And after Christmas came the sales, including a sale lunch at regional department store Rackham's, of all for just £1.50, soup or fruit juice, salad with ham, cheese or egg and a hot jacket potato, fresh cream trifle and a Rackham's coffee with cream to round it off. Nineteen ninety one. The Soviet Union passed into history. The bloc collapsed with 11 of the former Soviet republics establishing the Commonwealth of Independent States. On Christmas Day, Mikhail Gorbachev announced his resignation as President of the Soviet Union and made a farewell speech. On the domestic financial front, the pound hit its lowest level since Britain joined the European exchange rate mechanism, which was a sort of preliminary step on the journey to the euro. Although Britain pulled out of the ERM in 1992 and never did join the euro, the interest rate in the UK was running at 10.5%. Local church leaders united to criticise a deplorable increase in Sunday trading and called on the government to step in and penalise those who try to flout the law. It should be a day of relaxation and a special day for worship, they said. Two thousand and one. Pop superstar Robbie Williams celebrated a double Christmas triumph, beating off a spirited challenge from pub crooner Gordon Haskell to claim the coveted Christmas number one spot with something stupid, in which he was accompanied by Nicole Kidman. Robbie also held on to the top spot in the album chart with Swing When You're Winning. Only Fools and Horses, the classic BBC One comedy series, was the clear winner in the Christmas ratings war. Unofficial estimates pointed to 20.3 million viewers tuning in to see the return after five years away of Del Boy and Rodney, compared with 12 million attracted by ITV1's top programme The Soap Coronation Street. There was a wave of last-minute panic buying of Christmas presents, with 9,000 people walking through the door of Telford Shopping Centre in the first 15 minutes of trading on Christmas Eve. Meanwhile, Harry Potter author J.K. Rowling was reported to have conjured up the conclusion to her world-beating series of books about the teenage wizard. 2011. Queues of bargain hunters formed outside neck shops in Telford and Wolverhampton from well before dawn on Boxing Day, which was a Monday. And, in a sign of changing times, Argos, John Lewis and Marks and & Spencer were among stores which had started their sales online as early as Christmas Eve. The Duchess of Cambridge was the centre of attention as thousands watched members of the royal family attend the Christmas church service at Sandringham, with police saying scenes were reminiscent of Diana days. It was Kate's first Christmas as a member of the royal family. 
less happily. In his most serious health scare to date, Prince Philip spent Christmas in Papworth Hospital near Cambridge, being treated for a blocked coronary artery, but was said by Buckingham Palace to be in good spirits. Christmas Day was unseasonably mild, with temperatures across the country ranging from 9 degrees centigrade at Carter House in the Scottish Borders to as high as 14.5 degrees centigrade in Aberdeen, making it close to the warmest Christmas Day on record. That was 15.6 degrees centigrade or 60 degrees Fahrenheit recorded on December 25th in both 1896 and 1920. Up next in this week's tradition, we have a sweet treat. Written and presented by Penny Meville Brown, who is also known as the Blind Baker. This bake along provides both the recipe and instructions in an entertaining and encouraging manner to bring the joy of home baking to all listeners regardless of their level of sight. TNF Soundings Features from across the UK Hello, I'm Penny Melville Brown, the Blind Baker. I won an international prize that enabled me to cook all round the world. I've written all the recipes up, I've made hundreds of videos, and I blog and write about recipes all the time. There's even a cookbook. You can find out more about me at www.pennymelvillebrown.com. Hello, everyone. It's coming, Christmas is coming. And we've already had snow down here in Hampshire. Only a slight bit, but enough to remind us that, you know, the season is drawing in. It's getting colder at night. It's getting darker at night. So I thought some Christmas mincemeat might be just what we wanted for a recipe for this month. And I hope that this recipe is going to take you back to memories of your childhood, cooking that your mother made. It also is going to be a recipe that if you feel bold, you could give away small jars of it as Christmas presents because it will keep pretty well. Okay, now for what you need for this recipe, it's incredibly simple. The first thing you'll need is a large oven-proof bowl. Now I have a metal one that works really well, but you might have one in Pyrex or another toughened glass. You could use one that is ceramic. You could even use a casserole dish. Whatever suits you. What I would like you to have with it is a lid because we're going to cover some stuff overnight. It just keeps the creepy coralies out. If you get pressed, you just throw a tea towel over the top. Then we're going to need a big tablespoon and some clean glass jars or other containers with lids. If you've got a jam funnel, that's helpful. I also like to use a metal roasting tray. That's got some depth to it so that when I put these jam jars in the oven, they're going to be much easier to get in and out. And I can lay them down in there, just keep them safe so that, you know, as a person with a visual impairment, I'm not getting into a muddle. And finally, if you're feeling really adventurous, you could make some labels, last year's Christmas cards, cut up a bit of ribbon, happy Christmas, special mincemeat from dot, dot, dot. And there you are, little presents to give out. So let's start. And the point about this recipe is it probably takes longer to weigh out the ingredients and get it all into the bowl than anything else. So I'm going to start at the top. The good news is the very first ingredient is a healthy one. 220 grams of cooking apples that you've peeled, cored, and diced. Don't make them too tiny. You're probably looking at pieces about a centimeter on each angle. I'm glad I got the um, healthy bit in first because now we're into 170 grams of soft, dark brown sugar. And I know it sounds quite a lot, but when you've got all the other ingredients in, the sugar does fade a bit. 170 grams of raisins, 
80 grams of currants and 80 grams of sultanas, 80 grams of glacé cherries. And I would normally halve them, otherwise they're just a bit too much. And 80 grams of suet. Now, you can buy suet in packets and you can buy vegetarian varieties if that's more to your preference. I've got 50 grams of almonds. Now, you could just buy slithered almonds if that's easy for you. Um, I get them with their brown skins on because I think they taste better. And then I chop them in the kitchen, which inevitably means that some bits go flying all over the floor. But 50 grams of chopped almonds and 50 grams of brandy. And I'm sure you know that if we're trying to measure liquids when we can't see so well, doing it by weight is so much easier. I've said brandy, but you could use other liqueurs, other spirits, whatever you've got around. I often go and raid all the cupboards in the house and see what there is. Then I've got an orange and a lemon, and each of those I've zested and juiced. And you can see, and you, perhaps you can imagine what this bowl is starting to look like, smell like. Each of these ingredients goes into it. This is the Christmassy bit. Two heaped teaspoons of ground mixed spice, a quarter teaspoonful of ground cinnamon. And here I tend to use whole nutmegs and grate them when I want them. So I'm going to say quarter of a nutmeg grated into the bowl. Now, if you haven't only got pre-grated nutmeg, that's no problem. Just throw in, mm, I don't know, quarter of a teaspoon. See, that sounds about right. So that's all your ingredients. We've measured all the ingredients into our bowl. Um, we give it a jolly good stir, and then we just cover it with something, a tea towel, a bit of cling film, a lid, and leave it overnight. And that's going to help all the fruit steep in the orange juice and the brandy. So next morning, we're going to come down to the kitchen and find this bowl of festering stuff. We're going to switch the oven on and put it on about 70 degrees Celsius or centigrade, whichever you use. And for me in my gas oven, that's going to be S for slow, or about the lowest setting I can get it to without it switching off, perhaps a quarter. That would be the most. And throw, well, no, don't throw, place gently your bowl of deliciousness onto a shelf in the oven. You need to leave a shelf underneath because you're going to put the tray of jars in there later. So you're going to set a timer for two and a half hours, and that is your mincemeat en route. As I said, we've got some jars. We want to make sure that they are clean, that they are sterilized. So I always find the best way is to take quite a deep oven tray, pop the jars in that, and I will lay them down, stand them up, whatever is the most convenient, whatever is the safest for me. And they go into the bottom of the oven an hour before the mincemeat is due to come out. So eventually, we're going to hear that alarm. And bring, bring, mincemeat is ready. I want you to be careful here because you've got two quite hot trays or containers. We want some oven-proof mats on the work surface. So you want some oven mitts or whatever you use to protect your hands. And put first up the bowl of mincemeat, and second next to it, the tray of the jars. And now we are just about ready, once we switch the oven off, to start spooning the mincemeat into the jars. I know that when you can't see very well, this is not necessarily the easiest thing to do. Um, that's why I would suggest a jam funnel if you've got one. I have one that I made myself, which actually fits my jars perfectly but some other funnel. And at the end of the day, if you're making this for you, if you put your finger in the jar just to feel how far your mincemeat has gone, that's perfectly acceptable too. And so when you've got all the mincemeat into all the jars and you've filled them up quite nicely, you know, don't be sparing, get, fill them up to the top, then screw on your cold lids. And using cold lids will help it all as well. And then let the whole lot cool. Because what you want to do is probably clean up any spills off the outside of your jars before you start doing decorating, labeling, or anything else. And there you go. Jars of Christmas mincemeat that will last, ooh, I would normally say a year, but I must confess, I have had jars that have been much, much older and still been delicious. 
my favorite way, if you're not going to make mince pies, is to put the mincemeat on top of a crumble, usually an apple crumble. So I wish you all a really happy Christmas. I hope this little recipe, and I hope it isn't too difficult, has inspired you to think, well, I could do something like that. Penny can do it. She's blind. I can do it too. If you've got ideas or suggestions for future recipes, please get in touch with me. You can always make contact through my website, www.pennymelvillebrown.com. So happy Christmas and see you in the new year. Bye-bye. TNF Soundings. Over to Mina now with a special edition of this week's weather as we head back to a rare white Christmas in the black country. Flashback to 2010, a rare white Christmas in the black country. It was the coldest December since nationwide records began 100 years earlier, going down in history as one to remember. But good gloves, stout boots and a flask of tea were all the hardy workers of the black country needed to carry on their duties despite wintry weather. Snow couldn't stop the region's milkmen, postal workers, deliverers and repair staff from getting the job done. The harsh weather was caused by unusually high air pressure that blocked mild westerly winds and brought cold air south from the Arctic. The winter of 2010 saw the earliest widespread of winter snowfall since 1993, with the first flakes falling as early as November the 24th in some parts of the country. The snow also created picture postcard scenes and many of the animals at West Midland Safari and Leisure Park and Dudley Zoo were loving it. The seven strong herd of reindeer at the safari park, including Rudolph, Blitzen and Donna, looked right at home and Buster the white tiger rolled in the snow. As well as being the coldest December on record, it was also the coldest month in England and Wales since February 1986, the coldest in Scotland since February 1947, and in Northern Ireland it was the coldest on record. The average temperature for December was 1 Celsius, which was significantly colder than the long-term average of 4.2 Celsius. The month was cold and snowy, but it was also relatively dry and sunny, the Met Office said. Analysis showed it was the third driest December since records began in 1910, with just 38% of the expected rain falling during the month. And the third sunniest in series of records dating back to 1929. Cheers for that weather update, Mina. Up now, we have a special edition of this week's sports feature. The Christmas Day truce of the Great War in 1914, when in some parts of the line the guns fell silent and British and German soldiers climbed out of the trenches to chat, share cigarettes and have a kickabout in no man's land, is famous as a moment of humanity amid the horror. Local historians Richard Pursehouse and Ben Cunliffe have researched the part soldiers from the North Staffordshire Regiment and South Staffordshire Regiment, which will have included many from the West Midlands and the Black Country, played in that brief oasis of peace on the Western Front. Local regional newspapers shortly after Christmas 1914 ran stories, both general and specific, says Richard. One reported, both parties sang carols and at several points Old Lang Syne was sung. The Huns, however, spoiled the tone of the proceedings by exultingly declaring that they would win the war and take their next Christmas dinner in London and Paris. 
The Staffordshire Advertiser, dated February the 27th, 1915, ran a story under the headline, Played the Germans at Football. It included an interview with drummer Arthur E. Salt of the 1st North Staffordshire Regiment. It quoted him as saying, We gave them a 24-hour armistice on Christmas Day. Of course, during the day we paid compliments and had a sing-song. They said they would sooner be in London or anywhere except where they were. Well, we had a football contest and England won 2-1. We parted on best of terms and at night started on our usual game as butchers of war. Richard says the same newspaper dated December the 31st, 1914, had run a story from a different part of the front about a Midlands-based football player, Gunnar Herbert Smart, serving in the 5th Battery Royal Field Artillery, who had written home about the interchange of courtesies between British and Germans on Christmas Day. The Germans had a Christmas tree in the trenches and Chinese lanterns along the top of a parapet. Gunnar Smart had written, Come over, said one German soldier, I want to speak to you. We didn't know how to take it at first, but one of us went over, and as no harm befell him, others followed. But our commanding officer would not let more than three at a time go. I went out myself on Christmas Day and exchanged some cigarettes for cigars. The soldier I met had been a waiter in London and could use our language a little. He says they do not want to fight. An unnamed officer in the South Staffords, writing home to his wife in Penn, Wolverhampton, told how on Boxing Day, he and a fellow officer walked down to the trenches the regiment were about to occupy. He added, It was very funny yesterday, Christmas Day. The soldiers showed themselves over the top of their trenches, which are only 50 yards off, and held their hands up, and then got on top of the trench and sent men out halfway towards our lines. After this, a few of us thought it would be just as well to shake hands and exchange cigarettes with them. We called them and met a few halfway between the trenches. They put down the cigars on the ground and they were jolly good sports too. One fellow found a top hat and frock coat and he was dancing about in it. On Christmas Day, we had a football out in front of the trenches and asked them to send a team to play us. But either they considered the ground too hard, as it had been freezing all night, and was a ploughed field, or else their officers put the bar up. One of our side went out and they shook his hand and said, Let us have a day off, as it is Christmas, and we won't do any shooting, and told our people they could go out and bury their dead and they wouldn't shoot. Many of those who took part in, or witnessed the truce, were destined to join the dead. In a last letter completed just two days before he was shot dead, King's Shropshire Light Infantry Officer Captain Robert Patrick Miles, who was 35 and attached to the Royal Irish Rifles, described the events. Friday, Christmas Day. We are having the most extraordinary Christmas Day imaginable. A sort of unarranged and quite unauthorised but perfectly understood and scrupulously observed truce exists between us and our friends in front. The funny thing is it only seems to exist in this part of the battle line. On our right and left we can hear them all firing away as cheerfully as ever. He wrote that he was disappointed to see that there were a cheery lot of fellows. I had hoped to see a collection of living skeletons half covered with rags, animated toast racks in uniforms. They are distinctly bored with the war and do not seem to have been impressed by the famous hymn of hate that we read with so much glee in the Daily Mail. In fact, one of them wanted to know what on earth we were doing here fighting them. In Captain Miles' sector, the truce continued on Boxing Day. They simply disregard all our warnings to get down from off their parapet, so things are at a deadlock. We can't shoot them in cold blood. I cannot see how we can get them to return to business. When three British artillery shells landed on the German trench, I'm dashed if a couple of them didn't come over and complain about it. Didn't seem to think it was playing the game at all. The letter ended on December the 28th, 1914. Captain Miles was shot dead while he stood giving orders in the trenches on December the 30th. Richard says depending on the positions of the trenches, some of the truces continued for several days and even weeks. Many generals on both sides in the main thought it was madness to fraternise on Christmas Day and beyond. 
The men and officers who shared cigarettes, cigars, chocolate, bread, schnapps or strong navy rum also exchanged addresses and regimental buttons from their coats and tunics. They sang silent night across no man's land to each other, to the same tune but in their own languages. They reflected on where the true madness lay. Behind the lines in the general's chateau. Now we have the quiz answers for this edition. Take it away, Roger. TNF Soundings. Features from across the UK. Hello, Roger Brooks back again with the answers to our Christmas quiz. In the old days, what was the traditional Christmas meal in England? It was pig's head and mustard. Pig's head and mustard. Question two. Which of the following artists has had the most number ones? Sir Cliff Richard, Abba, Slade, The Beatles or Elvis? The answer is the Fab Four, The Beatles. Question three. Which country traditionally supplies the Trafalgar Square Christmas tree? That's Norway. Norway. Question four. In The Christmas Song by Mel Torme and a million others, but he actually wrote it, what or whose eyes were all aglow? Tiny Tots. Tiny tots with their eyes all aglow will find it hard to sleep tonight. Question five. Why is it called Boxing Day? Well, there's a fairly logical answer to that, which is that Boxing Day was a traditional day off for the servants. I'm sure you give yours the day off. I certainly give mine the day off. But back in the day when this was first coined, it was because that was the day because they were not working. They were given a Christmas present in a box, usually money, I think. Question six. How many tips are there on a snowflake? And if you hold it in your hand for long enough, the answer is none. But technically, the answer to an existent snowflake is six. What's the most popular... This is question seven. What's the most popular treetop ornament in the UK? It is... Not a star, not a Santa Claus, it's an angel. Question eight. Who wrote A Christmas Carol? That was, of course, Charles Dickens. Question nine. When do the 12 days of Christmas begin? Well, they begin on Christmas Day. And in the same calendarial realm, question 10, what's the name of the period between Christmas and New Year? It's tween them, and it's actually known as Twixmas. Twixmas. You get a free chocolate bar if you say it often enough. Question 11. What was Scrooge's first name in A Christmas Carol? It was Ebenezer. Question 12. Which song, by Brenda Lee originally, big hit, has the line, everyone dancing merrily in the new old-fashioned way? It was rocking around the Christmas tree. Innocent days. Question 13. Which of Santa's reindeer has the name of a love icon? Well, of course, the ultimate love icon is Cupid. Cupid. In question 14, in the song Winter Wonderland, the line goes, In the meadow we can build a snowman and pretend that he is 
Parson Brown. Parson Brown, because he'll say, are you married? We'll say, no, ma'am, but you can do the job when you're in town. Question 15. In the song, The Twelve Days of Christmas, what did my true love give to me on the eighth day? Day eight. Eight maids a-milking. Eight maids a-milking. Question 16. Which of Santa's reindeer's names begin with the letter D? There's Dancer, Dasher and Donna, as in Donna and Blitzen. Question 17. Which plant is known as the Christmas flower? It's the poinsettia, the poinsettia. Question 18. In the movie It's a Wonderful Life, the lead actor was James Stewart, Jimmy Stewart. Question 19. The answer to which decoration is not seen on royal Christmas trees, it's tinsel, tinsel. I suppose they've got enough gold to put it on. They don't need tinsel. And question 20 was, what do Swedish children leave out for Santa? Well, it's a caffeinated thing to keep him going through the night. They leave him a cup of coffee. So I hope he usually arrives early so it's not gone cold. Hope you enjoyed the quiz. Santa Brooks off for the time being. TNS Soundings. So that's it for another edition of the Black Country Talking News. A reminder to our CD listeners who have received CDs in padded envelopes that you don't need to send anything back to us. If you have a sight loss tip or someone you would like to wish happy birthday to, just say hello to. Maybe even a poem or talking book you would like reviewed, then please get in touch with us at the Beacon Centre. Call 01902 880 Email bctn at beaconvision.org or write to us at the Black Country Talking News, Beacon, Wolverhampton Road East, Wolverhampton, WV4 6AZ. We look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for listening and thank you to all our supporters, donators and volunteers who without their support will be unable to run this free service. Please note the information and views expressed in this recording does not necessarily represent the views of Beacon or Talking News and were accurate at the time of recording. Mentions of goods and services does not imply endorsement and whilst every care is taken to supply accurate information, Beacon and Talking News do not undertake liability for any errors. So it's goodbye from all of us, stay safe, have a good week and we look forward to bringing you next week's edition of the Black Country Talking News. Ta-ra!